1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, page 961 in your pew Bible this morning. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Over these last weeks, we have been in a series, a a series we call the Gospel of God, and have been walking through various texts to talk about that gospel, to talk about that plan of God to uh, reconcile a people. And we've talked about the fact that that is the foundation of Christianity. There, There are other things that we could say about Christianity, but if you leave out that, they don't make any sense. And it's not Christianity. You you must build on that foundation. And so that's what we've been doing over the last weeks. And my plan is that we will continue to do that for a few more weeks where I'm taking various texts from various places to build on that particular foundation. And then at Easter time, we'll move into that period of time, the weeks, a couple of weeks previous to Easter and Palm Sunday and Easter. And then following that time, we will... Uh, we will launch into a new book. We'll announce that in a few weeks, but we'll, we'll announce another study that we will take a book of Scripture, which has been the practice most of my ministry these later years, particularly these last years particularly, that we've just taken, taken books and chunks of Scripture, and we'll do that again. But for the time being, we're looking at various texts, and this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we've just read. But let me remind you of what we've said, some of the things that we've talked about, and, uh, and then we'll look at that text for a moment. There was a promise that was given to Abraham back in the Old Testament, a promise that through Abram all the nations would be blessed. That was a promise of the gospel. That was the early promise of that gospel, that good news of God that was going to come and something that God was going to do to, to reconcile the people and it would be a blessing all of the nations. But the big picture of how that worked its way out, we spent some time on one of the Sundays talking about that. There are really four kind of epic periods of redemptive history. The first period of redemption really was God's concentration on the nation that came out of Abraham, on the Jewish people, on the Hebrew people. His focus was honed in upon those Hebrew people as he took them out of the nations and he blessed them. And for that period of time, for the most part, he let the Gentiles go. It wasn't that they weren't responsible for their actions. They all had sinned, all all including the Hebrews had sinned, all had sinned. 
and fallen short of his glory. All had spurned it. But for that particular time, he concentrated on the Hebrew people. And for the most part, the Gentiles went their way. There were a few. In fact, one of the one of the wonderful things about the genealogies that interspersed in the genealogies that we find in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke's gospel, are Gentiles. Not, not a lot, but a few. And so there was a sense in which some of the Gentiles, a few of the Gentiles, came to embrace the promises. But for the most part, the majority, the vast majority, did not. And then something happened some 2,000 years ago as Jesus came as he was the fulfillment of the promise of that blessing to come and all of the promises, Scripture says, are yes in Jesus and Christ. But from then a period of time, a new period of redemptive history began, a period when, for the most part, God let the Hebrews go. They went their way. And God concentrated on the Gentiles. The the blessing came to the nations to all of the nations. What we heard about this morning is part of that blessing continuing to be taken to the Gentile nations. Now, there are a few of the Jewish nation, of the Hebrews who are coming to faith in these days, a few, but certainly not the majority. The majority have been left to go their way. Those are the first three periods, a period of God letting the Gentiles go concentrating on the Hebrews, then the period now where the concentrating on the Gentiles, for the most part the Hebrews, are going their way. There'll come another time, another epoch, I think, of redemptive history when, when there'll be a great turning in Israel. There'll be a great turning of the Hebrew people. There'll be a great number, the vast majority of the Hebrew nation, the, the Israelites, will embrace the Messiah, but not yet, not now. For the most part, they don't. And we live right now in that really third period of tremendous mercy to the Gentiles, to us. Now, there may be a few with some Hebrew blood here, but probably very few and probably very little. But we live in a day and age when God's mercy has been turned to the Gentiles and turned to us. And God is being incredibly merciful to us in this time, in this age, in this period. Today, the scripture would say, is a day of salvation. And, and uh, all of it centers in the work of Christ. All of it centers in what he did. And that mercy is, is dependent on the work of Christ. And there are many who are turning to that work, many who are embracing that, embracing the fact that God has come, as we talked about, over these weeks, has come to provide a righteousness, has come to have a righteousness be manifest among us. A righteousness that is founded on God's righteousness, on his um, intent to be righteous, and he can't be anything else than that, but he provides a righteousness that doesn't violate his righteousness, who he is. And, And that righteousness comes and centers in Christ. In Romans chapter 3, which we looked at in my Sunday school class this morning, we also looked at it a few weeks ago here, but it says that a righteousness from God has now been manifested among us in Romans chapter 3. It's come. A righteousness from God. 
Um, it's, it's a righteousness that the scripture says that the law and the prophets testified to. It was a, a righteousness that they said was going to come. And they pointed toward it and the, and the promises were about it. Now in this day and age, unfortunately, as we said, most of the Hebrew nation doesn't see it. They've, they've, they had it. They had all the blessings of it, but they've, they've rejected it. And it's come now to the Gentile world in, in great proportions. It's come to us to hear there is a righteousness from God that is by faith. A righteousness which is a part of the good news of God where in that God in giving his son as a propitiation, as a, as a sin bearer, as one who, who took away the wrath of God and diverted it from us, he is both just and justifier of those who have faith in him. He, he upholds his justice and he justifies a people, those who have faith in Christ. We spent some weeks talking about that righteousness. We spent a couple of weeks talking about it, that it isn't a righteousness that resides in us. Um, it's a righteousness that resides outside of us, a righteousness that was accomplished in Christ. And we looked at the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that, that we might become the righteousness of God. That double imputation, if you will. Our sin, which Christ knew none of, was imputed to his account given to his account, credited to his account. And in return, he credits to our account the righteousness that he accomplished in living without sin and dying without sin so that he would have a perfection that literally he could impute to us, that, that he could clothe us with, with an alien righteousness that he accomplished, uh, a perfection that he would give to be ours. Imputed righteousness. It's, a, it's an incredibly important concept in Scripture to understand. And then last week, we tried to take some time to, to help with some of the confusion that comes when we hear that word righteousness and, and how important it is to understand when the Bible talks about righteousness, what righteousness it's talking about and and how to differentiate that, whether it's talking about an imputed righteousness, that righteousness that God accomplished to give to us, or whether it's talking about imparted righteousness. And and that's a key difference. Um, Two things happen when we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Two things happen to us when we embrace that and by faith put our faith in the work of Christ. He imputes his righteousness. He, He credits his work to us. And it's as though he gives us his perfection. But he also, at the same time, at the same moment, begins to impart a righteousness in us. He begins literally to make us more righteous. He puts a seed of righteousness in us. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And we come to spiritual life. And a life of righteousness is begun, but not perfect righteousness. That's where, that's where we get confused sometimes. And we need to be careful to understand when, when we are resting in the righteousness of Christ for our reconciliation, which one of those two we rest in. 
We must rest in the imputed righteousness of Christ and not the imparted righteousness. You see, because the righteousness that we need to be reconciled to God has to be a perfect righteousness. And the only perfect righteousness is the righteousness that he accomplished. The righteousness we have because we're in Christ. Him being in us also produces righteousness. We begin to be a new creation in Christ. But it isn't perfected until we die. That's the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ as he imparts his righteousness to us. And we do become more and more righteous. But when when the enemy of our soul rises up and he wants to bring accusation, it is critically important to know where to run, to which one of those righteousnesses to run to. You don't want to run to imparted righteousness because it's not enough. It's not adequate. It's not sufficient. It's good and it's wonderful and it's the work of God begun in our life to actually begin to change us but it's not complete yet. And if you rest in that, it will not be sufficient. It will not be enough. It will leave you lacking. You must do as we talked about John Bunyan learned to do. He learned to, when that would come to him, when that accusation would come, he he learned to say, my righteousness is in heaven. My righteousness is at the right hand of the Father. It resides in his perfection that he accomplished in his life and his death and then the resurrection is confirmation of that. And one of the things that causes us to struggle in the Christian life is when we don't know where to run and we run to the wrong place. And it doesn't matter how much you want to convince yourself that I've changed enough that I'm righteous enough in myself, it isn't enough. It doesn't matter if you even somehow convince yourself of that. It's not enough. Because you see, God has to be both just and justifier if he's to forgive people. He has to demand perfect justice. He has to demand perfection. And there's a sense in which we can say, in order for us to get to heaven... You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect to get to heaven. The problem with that is we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've all spurned his glory, which is a horrific thing. So what do we do? Where do we turn? Where do we look? Inside? It's not enough. It's not perfect. It's becoming more and more like Christ. It's it's going from one degree of glory to the other, the scripture would say, and God is producing more and more of it in our lives as we go along, but it's not enough. You have to look to the perfection of Christ, to what he accomplished, to to the imputed righteousness that he gives us and we rest in. It's why the hymn writer said, and we've We quoted it a couple times. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. His righteousness, his perfection is 
is what causes us to be able to enter and be reconciled to God. Now, I want to go a little farther this morning. I want to go beyond that a little bit this morning because it's uh, it's incredibly important that we 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 look at a text this morning that Paul talked about being of first importance. That's the text that we find in Corinthians today. The, the text that says, I want to write to you, brothers, and tell you of what is of first importance. And he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about Christ being raised from the dead. And, and also that, that he died before he was raised from the dead. That's the first importance. That is the gospel that he preached. The question that I want to answer here and, and make application to in the light of what God is doing is the question if, if in this text, if you read it with me in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins accordance to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then it talks about him appearing to the 12 and 500 and so on. But the, the question we asked this morning is, the scripture says that he died. It's first importance, what I received from Christ, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So if he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, what does the resurrection mean? What does the resurrection mean? If, if it only took his dying, then why the resurrection? Certainly the scriptures predicted it. So there's, there's a reason there for the resurrection. But I think beyond that reason, why is the resurrection so important to us? Why in this very text can he say to us more about it? He says, in fact, in verse 17, we didn't read it this morning, but he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why would we still be in our sins if the scripture earlier says that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures? Why does it say that his death dealt with our sin? And here he seems to say, The resurrection is confirmation that our sins have been forgiven. Do you see the dilemma there? Do you see the the difference there? Why isn't his death enough? Why does there have to be a resurrection in order for us to know that he died for our sins? Well, we don't have a lot of time this morning. I just want to look at a couple of texts and make an application and... and, uh, hopefully strengthen our souls. Turn with me to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. If not, listen clear, closely. I think in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Isaiah, he answers that question of, of the why. Why the resurrection? Why did it have to happen? And here's what I think he tells us in those particular texts that I'm going to read this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 10, and then Isaiah 53. What he's saying to us is the resurrection of Jesus is the reward of the Father, is the reward of the Father to the Son for his sacrifice. It's the reward of the Father to the Son for his sacrifice. 
But the only way he can reward the son for the sacrifice is if, in fact, the sacrifice was sufficient and enough. And so the resurrection is not payment for our sins. It's not for the forgiveness of our sins. It's for the confirmation that he did everything that was necessary so that our sins could be forgiven. It's proof of the adequacy of his death. It's the proof of the adequacy of his death, that it is all sufficient, that his work that he came to do is sufficient and enough. That's what the resurrection tells us. Now look at what the scripture, look at how it's supported in scripture. Chapter Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Listen to what it says. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, again, it's telling who it was, him, the him was Jesus, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And then it says, because he was crowned with glory and honor, that's the resurrection, because of the suffering of death. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor as a reward for what he did in dying for the sins of all who would believe. It's a reward. It's a reward to him. It's a declaration that it's sufficient. Look again with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Another text that says the same thing. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When did he sit down at the right hand of God? After he'd been resurrected. So it's declaration of the resurrection. When he, when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sin, he was raised so that he might then sit at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then it says again, the declaration that it was a reward. Because it says, for by, or because, you could actually insert the word because there, because by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected. He has perfected, imputed righteousness. Remember we used that text the last couple of weeks? He has perfected for all time. Where does that rest? It rests in his righteousness. It rests in what he accomplished. He perfected those who would look to him and look to Christ to be their righteousness. He has perfected them for all time, those who are being sanctified or those who are being perfected, those who are actually growing in righteousness. But the perfection of that will not come to glorification. That will not end that process of becoming more and more like Christ will not end till we're glorified. One day we will be made perfect, even as he is perfect. But not yet. Not yet the perfection we must rest in is the perfection of Christ, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And the scripture says Christ was raised from the dead because by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being thanked. Sanctified. He, in fact, is getting the reward because his work is 
enough and is sufficient. Now my favorite text, and we'll close with this this morning, is Isaiah. Isaiah 53. I'd invite you to go there. Um, there is so much in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, you know, is the, is the portion of Isaiah that just describes the suffering servant and describes what Christ endured hundreds of years before it happened. What he was going to endure, what he was going to experience, what he was going to do so that by a single sacrifice we could be made perfect forever even as we're being made perfect. But in Isaiah 53, if you turn to to verse 10, look at it with me this morning. And what you need to do as I read this is it, it uses lots of he's. It says he, he, he. But you need to differentiate in this text when the he is God the Father and when the he is speaking of Jesus, all right? When it's speaking of the first person of the Godhead or the second person of the Godhead. So let's look at it. It says this in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord or the will of the Father to crush him, the Son. Just let that sink in a minute. It was the will. So there is a sense in which we could say it pleased the Father to crush the Son. He has put him to grief. And then it goes on to say, when his soul, Jesus' soul, makes an offering for guilt, he, the father, shall see his offspring and the father shall prolong his days. Resurrection. It was the will of the father to crush the son. And when he saw that he made an offering for guilt, a sufficient, adequate offering for guilt, it says that he prolonged his days. The father prolonged his days. It's speaking of resurrection. The will of the Lord, the will of the father, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, Out of the anguish of the son's soul, he, the father, shall see and be satisfied. You see, the father raised the son because of what Christ experienced in that death and what he accomplished in that death. And the father was satisfied that it was sufficient. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Those are glorious words. Where do we get that idea of the imputed righteousness of Christ that that somehow there's a righteousness that he will give us and, and use to declare us righteous here in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before it even happened? We see it prophesied by Isaiah. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. goes on in verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Speaking again, resurrection language of what's going to happen as he's raised, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's incredible. 
It's incredible to see those things, to see the, the interaction between the Father and the Son in this text. One of the things I said in my Sunday school class this morning, and, and the speaker said as well in a different way, is it, 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 as you see redemption, as you see texts like this, don't, don't see it in some way as this angry God of the Old Testament, the Father, and, and, and Jesus kind of as the good cop who somehow persuades the angry Father to relent. Twist his arm, if you will, in a way that causes him to, to, to move in gracious ways. That's, that's not the picture. It's, it's a, it's a one God concept. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together because they so love the world that they together did this. And the Father's Joy. The, the Bible talks about Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. But it was the Father's joy as well. In the midst of, of it pleasing him to crush the Son was a pleasure in what that was going to accomplish. It was going to allow him to be just and justifier and to provide a righteousness, an imputed righteousness, a perfection for a people that in his plan he had set out to redeem and to save. That's the gloriousness of the gospel this morning, that God came after a people. And in this day, he is coming after the Gentiles. He's coming after the nations to help them to put their hope and their faith in him and in Christ. This morning, I hope that's where your faith rests. I hope that's where your hope rests. I hope you know that it is a sure foundation because it rests in what he's done. We're going to sing this morning a song that we, we sang this morning. We already sang it once, but it, it, it says exactly what we just talked about. One of the lines says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death, yes, he died for your sins if your faith is in him, but also his resurrection that is the declaration of the Father, the shout of the Father that it was sufficient and adequate. And then it says, why should I gain from his reward? Whose reward? The reward of the Son in resurrection. I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's stand and sing. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Behold 
the man upon the cross, my sins upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there, until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life, I know that it is finished. in anything no gifts no power no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection why should I keep from his reward I cannot give an answer but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have made my ransom. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have made my ransom. Father, we're grateful that we don't just have to sing that last line three dozen times to somehow convince us that your wounds paid our ransom. We only need to look to the resurrection. It's the Father's declaration that they paid the ransom of all who have faith in the work of Christ. Lord, I'm grateful for that. We don't have to whip ourselves into a frenzy. We just have to rest in the truth of your word. We are grateful that you looked upon his wounds and were satisfied. It's our hope, Lord, that, Father, you are satisfied and And we're also grateful, Lord, that even this song says how deep the Father's love is for us. It's all about the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Oh, Father, we thank you for it. I pray it will strengthen us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.